We turn again this evening to 1 John chapter 5, the last chapter of John's first epistle, 1 John 5. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood, And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, Whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If any man see his brother's sin, a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness, and we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Call your attention this evening to verses 4 and 5 
of 1 John 5, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we all observe and experience that we are in the midst of a battle, a spiritual battle, what Scripture refers to as the battle of faith. We have seen and experienced the wiles of the devil. It's a battle in which Satan and all his hosts are intent on our defeat. We have considered even this morning the wiles of the devil and the many means by which he seeks to destroy us and to separate us from the captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ the righteous. But the text this evening reminds us that we have the victory. We are conquerors in Christ. John had opened this chapter by saying, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. To be born of God is to be a child of God. To be given new life in Christ. Only those born of God can believe that Jesus is the Christ with all the implications that that means. Jesus himself explained that truth to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. That faith in Christ as the Christ of God, and the fact that that faith arises out of that new birth also emphasizes the relationship that is established by that faith. Because of who God is and the relationship in which we stand to him as his children for Jesus' sake, it necessarily follows that we love him. But there are additional implications that arise from that love for God. As we have seen, to love God is also to love those who are begotten of him. In other words, if you are born of God, you love the children of God, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Still more, the apostle continued by saying in verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. That also indicates that those who stand in this covenant relationship to him in Jesus Christ, as those, his commandments are no longer a burden to us, They are no longer that which holds us in bondage and condemns us. Christ has freed us from the curse of the law. By the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we know ourselves as God's children. We occupy a place in his house, and therefore his commandments are not grievous. They're not a burden to us. Instead, they're our delight. 
We are conquerors, therefore, over the law. That's the reality of the Christian life. But now, in the text we consider this evening, verses 4 and 5, the apostle continues to develop this thought by showing us we are not losers in the battle. We are conquerors in Christ. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? I call your attention to this text then under the theme, Conquerors in Christ. Now as we face that theme, we want to consider three questions. First of all, overcoming what? Secondly, overcoming how? And finally, overcoming because of what? The Apostle speaks of fighting an uphill battle, as it were. A battle in which the enemy seems to have every advantage. But the Apostle speaks of our overcoming in the battle. Being conquerors in Christ. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Now you recognize the world is viewed from a particular point of view here. And we understand from our study of 1 John that the term world it has different connotations depending on the context in which it's used. But in John's first epistle, he consistently uses that term to refer to the world as it is under the power and bondage of sin. So we saw, for example, in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Chapter 3, verse 13. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Chapter 4, verse 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And even later in the chapter which we read, chapter 5, verse 19, we know that the whole world lieth in wickedness. So the text we consider this evening also uses that term with the same connotation. Now as we consider what we are up against in this world, and what it is to live as children of God in this world, I dare say that at no time previously has the world been so dangerous and so successful in injuring Christ's church 
as it is right now. As we saw this morning in our consideration of the Lord's Prayer, the sixth petition, we face temptation on every side, and we must recognize the danger to our own lives and those of our fellow church members. The world, as referred to in this text, is an enemy from a threefold point of view. Calvin was correct when he defined the idea of this world as meaning all that's outside of God, whether in the creation or in us. Well, that's certainly true. Whatever in us or in the world around us that's not of God belongs to the world, as the apostle uses that term here. And therefore the Bible gives that world of warfare substance when it speaks of the battle against the world and our own sinful flesh and those as they stand in the service of the devil. Our enemy, therefore, is the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. That's our threefold enemy subsumed here under the term world, as it stands and develops out of the sin of Adam. Now, if you consider those three aspects of our enemy, it's probably impossible to say which does the most harm to us spiritually, the devil himself, and that would include his hosts, or the world of sin and unbelief, or our own sinful flesh. But taken together, they form an enemy that is a formidable host. Now there are those who might question my statement that at no time previously has the world been so dangerous and so successful in injuring Christ's church as it is right now. And it's true that the true church of God, his elect people, has always been a little flock, as Jesus referred to her in Luke 12, verse 32. But I make that statement on the basis of two things. First, we must understand that the signs that Christ gave us of his second coming, as revealed in Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation and elsewhere, increase in intensity as the day of our Lord draws near. That includes the workings of the evil one. Satan clearly has been loosed. The demonic influences in the world and in the church today are clearly evident. It isn't that the sins we face are new. Read the New Testament scriptures and read Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, for example, and you find that many of the troubles that we face and have faced as churches are troubles seen already in the, new, in the early period of the New Testament. But the sins seen not only in the world, but in the church, 
have certainly increased in intensity. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24 and elsewhere that iniquity shall abound as we approach the nearer the time of his second coming. The attacks upon Christ's church have been an overwhelming assault upon our spiritual senses. But my contention that we live in an age of unprecedented attacks is also based on the Bible teaching us that there is a constant development of sin in the world. Scripture teaches indeed that God governs sin. He channels it, as it were, for the sake of his church and people. But as John wrote, the whole world lieth in wickedness. Man uses all things and does all things, even outwardly all good things, for his own end. In the service of sin and in opposition to God. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin, Paul writes in Romans 14, verse 23. So if you study the history of the Old Testament, for example, you see a constant development in sin. An increase from the beginning of the world even to the coming of Christ in wickedness. I pointed this out to our 6th and 7th graders in catechism class this past week as we introduced the history of the Old Testament. There are times of typical deliverance throughout the Old Testament, the salvation of God's people, but always in conjunction with those those clearer revelations of God's coming in Christ is an increase in the sin of the world and that sin as it affects the church. And so Christ tells us it will continue even to the end of the world. As God lifts his hands, as it were, for the unfolding of history according to his sovereign counsel, and as the population of men increases in this wicked world, so sin increases. The psalmist of Psalm 92 sees not only the development, but the reason. When the wicked spring as the grass, And when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. That's the world in which you and I live. So we may certainly see that at no time has the world been so dangerous for you who will live godly in Christ Jesus. Every age has had its own peculiar plague of sin and has revealed its own particular hatred toward God and his Christ and his church. In the days of violent and physical persecution, the world slew its thousands. But I say in the light of Jesus' words and in the light of the inspired epistles that 
These days of ease and luxury and free thought and the love of pleasure and the rejection of even the most basic definitions of the creation ordinances of God, the distinction of male and female found even in the animal world, the world slays its hundreds of thousands. The subtle influences of the world nowadays seems to infect the very air we breathe. It creeps into our midst like an angel of light leading multitudes of well-meaning church people captive, even exposing them as not of Christ. That same love of the world's good things, that same dread of the world's opposition, which proved so fatal to men such as Judas Iscariot and Demas and many others, is even more powerful today. The enormous power of self-love and pleasure-seeking, the startling rise of so-called tolerance toward every abomination of man, and intolerance of the truth of the word of God, all these things point to the astounding power of the world and make it all the more necessary for ministers of the word to be faithful in crying out, Beware of this world. Now the apostle says, Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. We are conquerors in Christ, being born of God. Now you will recognize in those three words, born of God, the foundation of the gospel in its application of salvation to you and to me. That speaks of the spiritual change worked by the Spirit bringing new life where there was no life. John clearly saw this concept as essential to his pastoral ministry. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in the third chapter of his gospel account, John set forth that teaching from the mouth of Christ. Here in this first epistle, he refers to the Christian six times as being born of God and once as being begotten of God. And when I say that John saw this wonderful doctrine essential to his pastoral ministry. You who are born again can understand why. To be born of God is absolutely necessary to our salvation. That's what Jesus said in John 3, verse 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can be born to Christian parents, Raised in the sphere of the church, 
You can even become a prominent church leader, as was Nicodemus. But Jesus says, without being born of God, salvation is not yours, nor the victory of faith. Without being born of God, it is impossible rightly to know God in Christ. It is impossible to serve Him in a way acceptable to Him. Nor will you experience His fellowship and favor in this life or afterwards. That's exactly why as pastors and elders dealing with someone who shows impenitence, the question that must immediately be faced is, is this person a child of God? We sometimes have to ask that question. Are you a child of God? What makes you think you are? Has this person been born again? Reformed churches, especially those who have a biblical understanding of the organic view of the church, have always emphasized the importance of the judgment of charity. We are to deal with our fellow confessing Christians with the judgment of charity thinking even of those who fall into sin as members of the sheepfold to be restored in the way of repentance. But that judgment of charity doesn't presume regeneration. The new birth comes to expression in new life. And without that new life, we can counsel one endlessly until they receive no more counsel. But it is impossible to lead them to repentance. It is impossible for them to lay hold of the wonder of the gospel by faith. It's impossible for them to serve God. Without a natural birth, We would not be living and moving on this earth. Without a spiritual birth, a person shall never live and dwell in heaven. Without forgiveness through the blood of Christ, we have no right to heaven. But without the birth of which John speaks here, we have no salvation. Being born of God and being forgiven can never be separated. Every forgiven person is also born of God. And everyone born of God is also forgiven. And that's why only those born of God are and can be conquerors in Christ. Now to be born of God is to be the subject of an inward change of heart and mind. That birth of regeneration is not the renewal of our nature. It adds no new faculties to our minds, 
but it gives us an entirely new bent, a new perspective. The one born of God has a view of God and of sin and of Christ and of the Bible and of the church, a view that's so thoroughly new that Paul speaks of him as a new creature. By that birth, we are made by God dead unto sin and alive unto righteousness. It's that birth from God that compels us to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. The true grace of God which works this spiritual rebirth is like a light that cannot be hidden. Like a fire which though sometimes is dim, always smokes and bears evidence of God's work. For It is by the work of the Spirit in our hearts that we carry on this warfare against the world and receive the victory. But as we consider this text, we must not overlook the fact that the Apostle says, whatsoever is born of God. We believe in verbal inspiration. We believe that every word of the Bible is inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, and therefore has significance. John does not say whosoever, though that is certainly implied. He doesn't refer specifically to us personally as the children of God, But he says, and he means that, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. What does that mean? We have to understand that whatsoever in light of the context once again where the apostle is speaking of love. That concept of love really lies at the very heart of this epistle, as we have seen. What the apostle does here in verse 4 is to put principle over against principle, or fountain over against fountain. The fountain, or the principle of the world, is sin. And all that is in the world proceeds from sin. The lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But the principle or fountain of the new life which God has created in us, in our hearts, is love. Love for God, his holiness and righteousness and knowledge, all of which are in Christ Jesus. That love of God is in our hearts. That characterizes us, all who are born of God, But remember, so long as we live in this world, our old nature is still with us. That old nature, that old man of sin, doesn't belong to that regeneration that has instilled in us that love for God. The old nature belongs to the world. That's the battle. 
That old nature belongs to the world. That's what Calvin meant when he said that to the world belongs all that is not of God, whether in creation or in us. There is still much in us that belongs to the world against which we do battle. The mind and the will and the body of my old man of sin belongs to this world. And from that love of Christ instilled in me in regeneration, God would have me fight against that old nature and against all that is of the world. That's our calling. That's the battle of the Christian that can never be avoided. That's what we refer to sometimes as the antithesis. The antithesis is that position that you and I take over against the wicked world, also as that world appears in our own sinful flesh. The antithesis is that conflict that cannot be avoided by one who is a child of God. This is the battle in which we who are loved of God and who love him are engaged. And that's why this text is such a blessed comfort to us when we lay hold of it by faith. Whatsoever is born of God, his love which lives within us and from which we confess his name and live as Christians, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. How? How is that victory accomplished? The apostle doesn't refer to a victory accomplished by conquering the world for Christ. There are those, even in Presbyterian and Reformed circles today, who contend that when we get Christianity to take hold and rule in our culture, then we shall have overcome the world. The problem with that is that Scripture teaches no such earthly victory for the children of God. It's not there. When you read Matthew 28 and the book of Revelation, for example, you you study what Scripture teaches concerning the overview of history and the development of sin, you cannot maintain such a position. The church will indeed be gathered, but far from overcoming the world in an outward sense, Jesus tells us we may expect trouble and persecution, and that will only increase. And that's our observation, too, isn't it? And yet the inspired apostle says, you have the victory. Why? How? That question can best be answered in light of what our Savior declared in John 16, verse 33. I have overcome the world. 
Jesus spoke those words the day before he was going to die. And he knew it. Yet he declared, I have overcome the world. Now that statement would have seemed ridiculous to the world's thinking. Because from their perspective in that day, if any career ended in a complete failure from an outward point of view, it was the earthly life of Jesus. He had no money. When it came time to pay taxes, he had Peter go down to the seashore with fishing tackle and cast it out, and by a wonder work of God's power, a coin was found in the mouth of the first fish Peter caught. That's how Jesus paid his taxes. Else he had none. He didn't have a place to live. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. When it came to his social status, he was an outcast. Oh yes, early in his career, multitudes followed him. They followed him for his miracles. He had been the most popular rabbi ever to walk on Canaan soil. More than once he had opportunity to be crowned the king of the Jews. And he would not. And tomorrow, I'm referring to the time he speaks this, I have overcome the world. Tomorrow, the next day, those same multitudes that once followed him would lead him to Golgotha crying, Crucify him! And mind you, in the face of all that, in the face of the world, Jesus declared, I have overcome the world. And he was right. How so? Because he could stand before the face of God and say, all the temptations of the world I have faced. And the desire for riches and fame and power and standing and pleasure have not overcome me. I have overcome the world. And presently, In just a few hours, I'm going to complete my perfect obedience to my Heavenly Father, asserting my absolute independence from this world for your salvation. I have overcome the world. In other words, Jesus fulfilled all obedience to the commands of God by his obedience to Love. So he overcame the world, and so whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. 
faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Faith is the victory even now. Although we cannot have the victory in an outward sense until the day of Christ arrives, yet we have the victory now within the world. That victory doesn't come by running away from the problems that we face in the world. Sometimes it really looks appealing to head to the mountains, set up our own little community, live on our own. God would not have us do that. We overcome by boldly facing the world by faith. By faith, we are called to live, whether as husband or wife or teacher or laborer or employer or citizen in this nation, by faith. You live in the church as one member with certain gifts, fulfilling your calling for the benefit of the whole body, you who are born of God are in the world, but not of the world. You use the world, but you don't abuse it. Is that right? You know when to say no. When to refuse to go along. You know when to, when to flee. You live as one whose Lord is Christ, whose life is heavenly. Because you're united to him by faith. By faith you overcome. Not being absorbed by either the world's business or pleasure. Even in things innocent. Which you are free to do with certain limitations. Things such as recreation and travel and the like. You do so with a mind on the needs of the kingdom, watching your expenditures and involvement and time and such things, careful that things don't keep you from fellowship with Christ and his people. Your liberty is in Christ, not in self-seeking. When all that is born of God in us, all the principle of the new life stands over against the world and remains steadfast and even increases in strength, we have overcome the world. And faith is the victory. Because it is faith alone that remains and stands strong even in the face of suffering and persecution and death. Faith is the victory. And why is faith the victory? Why do we overcome by faith? Because faith lays hold of and confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. We are conquerors in Christ. To overcome 
the world is absolutely impossible apart from Christ. In the face of this truth, I charge anyone here who is walking with the world to awake to the danger and to repent and to lay hold of Christ by faith. Apart from Christ is death. When we place pleasure before calling and happiness before holiness and self before Christ and his cause, we shall certainly be swept along with the world. Spiritual battle with the world is absolutely necessary. Did not our Savior say, Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple? That's Luke 14, verse 27. One or the other is sure to happen. Either you and I conquer the world, or the world conquers us. But John tells us, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Because faith lays hold of Christ. Faith rests on Him who already has the victory, on the solid rock who is Jesus, the Son of God. Faith is that bond that unites us to Christ. But the Apostle speaks of the name Jesus. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus, as you know, is Jehovah's salvation. Not only is he the one who revealed the Father in all his ministry and who accomplished the victory of our salvation through the suffering of the cross, But as the Son of God, he has all the divine attributes of the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's eternal, almighty, omnipotent, unchangeable. Faith unites us with that Son of God. No wonder we are assured of the victory. The world may be powerful, and it is. But the Almighty Son of God is infinitely more powerful. By faith, you and I are united to omnipotence. We can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth us. He is victorious who believes and confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. And the best is yet to come. Christ promises us in Revelation 3 verse 21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. And in Revelation 21, verse 7, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. 
Here in this world, there are many hard things to be done and many difficulties to be endured. There are wounds and bruises from the battle. There is often weariness and fatigue. There are even disappointments, sometimes of our own making. But the end of all things is at hand. For those who overcome, there will be a conqueror's crown. All sorrow shall be removed, all tears shall be wiped away. And we shall stand face to face with the captain of our salvation forevermore. Amen. We thank Thee, our Father in heaven, for Thy word, which is ever faithful. We thank Thee for giving us that word of truth to strengthen us in the faith, in order that we might overcome the world and experience the full victory which is ours in Jesus, the Son of God, in whose name we pray. Amen.